If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of James. Um, If you're not sure where James is, it may be best to start at the back of your Bible. So go Revelation and then Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd and 1st Peter, and then you'll hit James. Um, Or if you land in the New Testament and you find the big book of Hebrews, it's going to be after that. So the book of James... Today we are starting a new series in this book, um, which I imagine will take us into the fall uh, as we look at these these five chapters. Um, my, we we've been in the Old Testament a good bit late, right lately. We were, we were in the um, in the Gospels recently. Uh, we were in one of um, Paul's letters as we looked at. At Titus, and it feels good to, to jump into one of these general epistles. So here we are in the in the book of James. Um, and my hope today is, I, I had originally thought we'd get through verse 4, but we're just going to focus on um, on understanding a little bit about the, the history and the background of this book, um, including the author and the recipients of the book, and also look at this first verse, which simply reads, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And believe it or not, there is plenty there for us to think on. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Uh, my wife uh, recently read the book Middlemarch by George Eliot, which is a, a pseudonym uh, for a, a, a woman that wrote this, that couldn't, that had to publish under the name George Eliot. Um, and if you have ever seen it, and it's 900 pages, you will realize that that was a pretty amazing feat uh, for her to read that. In return for that accomplishment, I committed to watch the BBC miniseries with her, um, which <laughs> clocked in at six one-hour episodes. Uh, it's not as impressive, but it was an expression of love for my wife. Uh, we finished it up on, on Thursday evening, and it, it wasn't... Both of us would admit it was not the most thrilling cinematic event in the world, but it was it was good. Um, and I had no interest in reading the book until they closed the miniseries with the final line of the novel. Um, and it was uh, just this wonderful closing sentence that made me say, I, I think I'd almost read all 900 pages just to feel the full, full force of that last um, sentence. Um, so George, George Eliot, she wraps up this novel by describing the lives of her characters after um, the years that this story occupies. And she closes with a note about one of the characters whose name is Dorothea. Um, she's a character that has many plans and dreams, a lot of which don't come to pass. Uh, but she's also this woman of great integrity and, and great purity. And so Eliot is clear that, that many of, of Dorothea's plans didn't pan out. But, she writes... The effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive, meaning that her influence was broad and it was wide. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithful, who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Now, uh, Dame Judy Dench read that at the end, and she read it way too fast, so I had to look it up. So let me read it again for you, the, the part that I want you to hear. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, 
and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. I love that. I think kind of like Dorothy, we all have these dreams of living lives of great significance and great impact or or simply just doing one thing that is massively influential and meaningful. And some of us may be remembered um, for something important that we have accomplished in our lifetimes, but the reality for most of us, if we're honest, is that we will live fairly ordinary lives. Um, And yet, while our lives might feel thin sometimes or unimpactful, I love this thought that the world in some way is preserved and even made better by people who just simply seek to do the good that's in front of them in quiet and unnoticed ways. People who live faithfully a hidden life and then one day rest in these unvisited tombs. I think specifically as children of God, ordinary, everyday faithfulness is is the call of Christ on our lives. That's what he's asking us to do. That's what he requires of us. And that seems simple, but that is a big call, to live ordinary, faithful lives. And to, and through that, that faithfulness, that, the faithfulness in these ordinary lives, it, it feels unimportant sometimes. But it's, in fact, it deeply impactful on the world. And our lives may be incalculably diffusive. <laughs> we may, in fact, have a wider influence than we even realize simply by walking through life and being faithful in the small things that are set before us. To that end, the the book of James is largely focused on the practical works, the simple practical works that flow from faith. It paints uh, various portraits of what living by faith will look like, of what our lives will look like as we walk into the good works that God has laid out before us. This book is, is considered to be the closest thing to the book of Proverbs in the New Testament because, like the book of Proverbs, it's filled with with practical everyday wisdom for those who who fear the Lord and those who are seeking to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. James calls us to to see the transformation that Christ has done in us through faith in salvation. He's calling us to see that thing that has happened worked out in small everyday attitudes and words and actions. So he teaches us things like how to respond to trials and temptations. He talks about the fact that true religion boils down simply to caring for widows and orphans. Uh, He points out the danger of showing favoritism towards people who are rich. Uh, He talks about how really hard it is to control the words that you say. Uh, He talks about the foolishness of thinking that we know what tomorrow will bring and how we should live in light of that. He talks about how to be patient when we are suffering. Uh, He talks about how to pray for and with one another in the midst of sin or when someone is sick. How do we pray? There's this flow to the book, but but in large part, mostly it's just a reflection on the the fruit of salvation and what, what it will look like as it appears in our daily lives. The book actually has 50 com- over 50 commands in it. There's only 108 verses, but there's over 50 commands or imperatives in the book, reminding us that, that while faith in many ways is, is falling on to Christ, faith is also something that results in fervent action in our lives. It's a faith um, that, that shows itself forth in, in, in good deeds and in works. It's a very down-to-earth book. 
that has all these vivid illustrations. Many of them are just from everyday life experiences or observations within nature, rudders of ships and fire and all these things that are just fairly common. Some people even wonder, based on some of these things, if it wasn't first just a sermon that James preached that someone wrote down or that became something that was sent out to different churches because this was just his his bread and butter. This was his great sermon, and they finally wanted to get it out to everyone to hear what he was saying. And for us today, I think that the book of James has the same attraction that it probably did when people first read it. Because if you're if you're looking for practical, on-the-ground, daily living instructions and how to live in faith, James is just chock full of really simple, good instructions that help us how learn how to walk in faith. What's ironic, though, is that, that this emphasis on the works of faith is actually what makes the book of James very controversial throughout church history. So there's this large focus on practical living, and that, that's a little rough for some people, because compared to the letters of, of Paul, James feels very light on theology and very heavy on instruction. Um, there are actually, if you look at it, there's only two references to Jesus in the entire book. Uh, the one is, is verse 1 that we read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the other is in chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people have said if that if, if you remove these two references, then this book could just be seen as a, as a Jewish moral tract, uh, some sort of ethical literature for people who fear God. Again, just the Proverbs of the New Testament, actually minus Jesus if you took him out of those parts. Um, the practical instructions that, that we love have often been, been viewed as un, uninfluenced by the gospel of Jesus, um, overly influenced by the moral laws of the Old Testament. This is, just feels like moralism to some people. Even more difficult is the fact that James at certain points seems to, to be diametrically opposed to Paul, specifically on this issue of justification by faith alone, um, not through works of the law. Martin Luther hated the book of James. He said it was an epistle of straw. And the early church fathers didn't really know totally what to do uh, with the book for a long time. But in fact, I think all of this difficulty and uncertainty, it could lead us to say, well, let's study something else in the Bible before we study James. But but we affirm that, that James is here, it's in the Bible, and it has been for 2,000 years, and it is inspired by God, and it's, it's useful for us. And the fact that it, that it still is here, I think, is a testimony to the fact that it is something very valuable to say to us, and that we should wrestle with the, the issues that arise and the conflict that seems to be there, because we're going to learn something if we would do that. We will wrestle with it. It's here for a purpose. Um, I think, in fact, some of the controversy will start to to fade away if we think about the early church and some of the birth pains that were going on there as they were trying to understand things. Uh, One of the great struggles in the early church is this um, seeing the Old Testament shadows fulfilled in Jesus and in the New Testament. And what is that going to look like? It's the struggle to understand how the the law and all the, the stipulations and rules of the Old Testament and of Moses... How do those fit now into the lives who have come, of, of people who have come to see Jesus as the Messiah? Especially people who have been raised in Judaism, who know all these practices and laws. How, how now that I've received Christ, how does this work out in my life? How does Jesus fulfill the law? What, what is the place of good works in the life of faith? 
What do we do with all the commands of, of Scripture? These are important questions that we need to answer, and James offers an answer that, that has sort of a different angle, a different view than some of the New Testament offers, and is very helpful. As you think about the early church in the book of Acts and the epistles of the, of the New Testament, we see this struggle and this difficulty of what it looks like to tear down the wall that existed between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles. And if you read through the, the book of Acts, you'll find that there's one character, not, not just Paul, but there's another character in there, right in the middle of the struggle. And you know what his name is? James. <laughs> James, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, he is a key figure in the book of Acts, especially in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, as they were dealing with a lot of these, these issues. And it's that James that historically has been accepted as the author of, of the book of James. And he's not just a leader in the church of, of Jerusalem, but he's also the brother of Jesus. Well, we could say the half-brother of Jesus, given Jesus' miraculous birth, but, but a brother nonetheless. I just thought about kids. Have you ever thought about that, that Jesus had brothers and sisters? It's not something that we often think about, but that Jesus grew up in a household where there were, there were brothers and sisters that he had to learn to live with, that he experienced living in a family with, with other kids. Of course, however you say it, if I say Jesus had brothers and sisters, that's, that could be chock full of controversy, especially if you know anything about the teachings of, of the Roman Catholic Church about Mary, that, that she never had any children after, after Jesus. There's been lots of attempts to explain away um, the idea that, that Jesus had brothers and sisters or that Mary had more children after Jesus. Some people say that James was actually Jesus' cousin. Um, some say that he was a son of Joseph from a previous marriage. Um, but it's really unnecessary to go through all those gymnastics if we just take the statements of Scripture at face value and also keep Mary in the proper place as someone who is a wonderful example of faith and submission to God. Um, the Gospels make all these unashamed and unqualified references, though, to the siblings of Jesus. So Mark 6, Jesus enters into his hometown, and he begins to teach. And people who knew him, who had grown up, they'd watched Jesus grow up. They say this, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And then they say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Matthew thirteen fifty five has the same reference. And so we find that Jesus didn't just have one brother, but did you count them? He had at least four brothers, and he had at least two sisters. Um, he would have been the eldest in the family, obviously. And the fact that Joseph is absent in all of these descriptions, make people most people assume that means that Joseph probably died before Jesus started his, his public ministry. Um, we can imagine that Jesus, uh, we can't know for sure, but it, it, it's plausible that he picked up his father's trade and then he helped to support his family just like any older brother in that culture would have been expected to do. No, it's hard to think about. But I mean, I mean, you don't think about it often, but I imagine that he took on some of the responsibility of providing for his family, of caring for his siblings, of living a, a normal life. But his family was just as skeptical of, of his ministry as the people of Nazareth were when it came to the point that he started to claim that he was the Messiah. You know, if people in your hometown have trouble believing you, then the people who grew up in the same house as you 
are going to have major issues <laughs> with with these kind of claims. Mark 3.21, Jesus is beginning his ministry, and his relatives are quoted as saying that they thought he was out of his mind. <laughs> John 7, his brothers tell Jesus to, to show himself publicly at the Feast of Booths. And they don't do it because they think he's the Messiah. They do it because they don't believe him. And they're saying, if you really think you're the Messiah, then show everyone. Of course, if you have siblings, you can understand that, right? <laughs> Even if your little brother or your little sister became the president of the United States of America, you would remind them about all the embarrassing things that they did when they were in junior high. You know? <laughs> um, we struggle to, to see our family members as anything but that. We love them, but we don't really want to listen to them. <laughs> and yet something changes in the heart of James and of his brothers and sisters. Because in Acts one fourteen. The, the brothers of Jesus are gathered together with the disciples in the upper room waiting for the coming of the Spirit. We can't pinpoint an exact time when James' opinion of Jesus changed, but we could guess that it may have happened during the resurrection, if not in the crucifixion of Jesus. I, I say that because of 1 Corinthians 15. So we read this on Easter, but 1 Corinthians 15, the 3 through 8, Paul writes this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then listen to this. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus specifically appears to James. We don't have any details about that meeting. It's kind of fun to imagine, though, what that would have been like for James to see his older brother and raised from the dead and then finally to believe, as it were. I don't know that I've ever paid attention to that reference specifically to James there. I've always noted Peter. He, he went straight to Peter. But he also had some sort of specific meeting with James. There's some church history, I don't think it's true, but they would even say that, that that was when Jesus established James as the head of the church in Jerusalem. I don't know. But it's interesting to think about this, and I think James, if you think about James, he stands as a, a unique witness to the, the truth of who Jesus claimed to be, namely that he was the Son of God, risen from the dead. I think he may even be more convincing than the disciples. So we see the disciples and the change that they had as evidence that, that Jesus had really risen from the dead, that they were really changed. So they were following Jesus. They, he died and they, they went into hiding. And then when he raises from the dead, they come out with full force with boldness because of what Jesus has done. That's a great testimony to the reality of the resurrection. But think about James. James is, is, is not a guy who had followed Jesus. James was skeptical of his brother. And he had a front seat to most of Jesus' life. And eventually, he comes to, to follow him and to call himself not just a follower of Jesus, but he calls himself the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about Thomas, and Thomas doubted. But James is someone who said, Jesus is out of his mind. <laughs> and then, he changes. He becomes a committed follower of Christ. So much so that church history tells us he became a martyr for Jesus. He was stoned to death. For his faith in Christ. What a transformation happened in this man's life. You know, some people say that James can't be the author of this of this book because 
he doesn't mention the fact that he was Jesus' brother. He doesn't mention the fact that he was the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Maybe, I don't know. I don't have to have James be the author of the book of James for me to, to learn from it. But I would also say that if, if he had been totally transformed by the gospel, then the absence of pride makes total sense. The absence of name dropping, <laughs> that just sort of would be par for the course, I think. That kind of humility is, is what marks all of the followers of Jesus. You think about the disciples, and when the Gospels are written, they don't hide the fact that they really had no idea what Jesus was talking about half the time. They don't hide the fact that when he died, they were scared, and when he rose from the dead, they didn't believe at first. There's a humility that comes, because our confidence isn't in us, it's in what Christ has done. And so James is the man who told his brother to show himself publicly at the feast because he didn't believe him. And now he looks at his core identity. You know what he says about himself? He says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the pride that kept him from believing in his brother is now gone. And it's been replaced by this humility that makes him want to serve God in Christ and to serve him alone. Again, whether James, the brother of Jesus, or some other James is the author, I think this title is interesting. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's striking. It reminds us that, that we live, as we've been talking about recently, in this wonderful reality of as being children of God, joint heirs with, with Christ. And simultaneously, we, we live in this reality of being joyful servants of God. Literally, we could say even slaves could be the translation of that word, of, of God and of Christ. We are, we are people who can cry out, Abba, Father. We are people who can pour out our hearts before God and know that He listens to us. But we are also those of Luke 17.10, who after obeying the Master, what do they say? We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. There's a sense in which we live in both of those realities as children of God, joiners of Jesus, but also servants of Jesus. I was reading John Stott's The the Cross of Christ this week. I commend it to you. And he points out that on the cross, when we look at the cross, it leads us to to two things. It leads us to self-affirmation, but it also leads us to self-denial. That they are, they are both there. So if we understand what Christ has done, then we realize that he's done it for us. And, and while we might be unworthy, we are not worthless. Christ has shown his love for us in dying for us. We, we are seen as of great value to the Father. But next to this self-affirmation, we also embrace a self-denial that also flows from seeing the sacrifice of Jesus seeing what he has done for us, and we follow Christ in this way of of self-denial, of of death to self and service to him alone. And out of that self-affirmation and that self-denial, the Christian walks the path of self-sacrificing love like Jesus. We We are truly welcomed as members of the family of God, but we can also say that we are servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. William Barclay comments on this. He says that this title of servant or slave implies absolute obedience, absolute humility, and absolute loyalty. I like that. A servant of God and of Lord Jesus Christ means we are absolutely obedient, absolutely humble, and absolutely loyal. Obedience, humility, loyalty. But he also says that it's a source of pride. That may sound strange. 
But in saying that we are servants of God, we put ourselves along some of the great Old Testament saints. Moses was a servant of God. Caleb and Joshua, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all identified as servants of God. To be a servant of God is not a totally bad thing. It's actually a wonderful thing. It's not a title that we would push away. It's a title that we embrace. If, if we would embrace the humility and the obedience and the loyalty that come with following Jesus, then we also would proudly say, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James doesn't need to say, I'm the brother of Jesus. He doesn't need to say, I'm the leader of the church in Jerusalem, because what he truly values is that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's most important to him. So right from the beginning, we we find a letter that is written by a man who who had come to embrace the lordship of God and of Jesus in a radical, deep-seated way. He's focused on the commands and the outworking of faith in holiness and love because he is focused on saying, I am a servant of God and of Christ. His devotion is, is complete. It encompasses every part of his life from from what he thinks to what he speaks to how he prays and where he goes. It impacts everything, and he wants that to be true for his readers. He wants that to be true for us, that we would see that if we are servants of God, if he is Lord, then He his influence is over every part of who we are. So James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So he's writing to the 12 tribes who are scattered, which is obviously some sort of allusion, reference to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And right away we we might want to, to think that this is some sort of reference simply to Jewish Christians who are not residing in Jerusalem. So this would be um, those who were ethnically descended from one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but who were not located in Jerusalem. That would make sense for James to write that. He's a Jewish man, he's the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he's going to write to the scattered Jewish Christians who are not in Jerusalem at the time. That would make sense. But we should also remember how, how the work of Christ fulfills so many Old Testament shadows, including this, this picture of Israel as God's people. So in Galatians 6.6, 6, Paul says that those who trust in God... Are, who trust in Christ are the Israel of God. That's what he calls us. He says in chapter 3 that the true, true children of Abraham are those who are children of faith, not, uh, not those of physical lineage. Peter uses a similar phrase in First Peter. He talks about being elect exiles in the world, exiles in this dispersion. And he says that the exiles in the dispersion, they are those who have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? So there's a uniqueness to this book. It, it certainly has a message to those who grew up as, as, Jewish, Christ, as Jewish believers and have now become Christians. It's considered to be one of the earliest New Testament books, maybe the earliest of the New Testament books. And so I think in some ways we can see it as this bridge between the Old Testament through um, the teachings of Jesus and then over to the teachings of Paul. So we can think about, about the Old Testament. We've said it's, it's sort of like the Proverbs of the Old Testament. But we also see a massive influence of Jesus on what James is writing. Um, there's, there's probably at least 20 references to the Sermon on the Mount in the book of James. 
So he's highly influenced by, by Jesus. But then also we see him bridging this, this gap as, as everyone is wrestling with the, how do we transition from this to, to what the Christian faith is. Teaching about, about discerning this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so he's wrestling with the ethical teachings that were that, that are that are a part of the, of what we're supposed to do. But how do we do that in light of being of, of grace? And James is trying to talk to the reality of, of how the law fits in, but also how Jesus, for the first time, lets us obey the law. I think that's stuff we all struggle with to a certain extent. James is writing for all of us because who is he writing to? He's writing, it says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Here's another way to say that. He's writing to God's people scattered in a hostile world who are looking for a new home. That's who he's writing to. So he's writing to all of us. He's writing to God's people in a hostile world who are looking for a new home. So let me break that down. He's writing to God's people. He's writing to those who God has purchased by the blood of his son. He's writing to to those who by faith have come to be a people for God's own possession. We are God's people, not by physical lineage from David or from, from Abraham, but by faith in Christ. We are God's people. So that's who James is writing to. He's writing to God's people, and it's God's people scattered in a hostile world. We are not all in one location, in one city, but we are dispersed throughout the world. And it's a world that is opposed to what we believe and how we want to walk. So we are God's people, and we are in we are scattered throughout this hostile world. Even as a church, we gather here on Sundays, but we're scattered throughout this city on a weekly basis in a hostile world. So, so James is writing to God's people scattered in a hostile world who are looking for a new home. We're not gathered yet, but our hope is that one day we will all be gathered into the true promised land, into the Father's house, into the new heavens and the new earth, where Jesus will be king, and the knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. James is writing to God's people scattered in a hostile world who are looking for a new home. Let me read an extended quote from a guy named J.A. Motyer. He summarizes this. James brings these lines of Bible truth together and so sets the scene for his letter. Better than any description could, the twelve tribes places the church firmly within the pressures and persecutions of this life. We can think of our ancestral tribes in the storm and stress of Egyptian slavery, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, on pilgrimage with God through the great and terrible wilderness, battling to enter into what the Lord had promised, and struggling ever after to live in holiness amid the enticements of a pagan environment. These are the experiences through which James would have his readers understand their pilgrim path. They are the Lord's twelve tribes and are dispersed throughout a menacing and testing world. That's us. Their homeland is elsewhere, and they have not yet come to take up their abode there. Their present lot is to feel the weight of life's pressures, the lure of the world's temptations, and an insidious, ever-present encouragement to conform to the standards of their pagan environment. They are the Lord's people indeed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb Himself, but not yet home. We are a lot like the twelve tribes scattered around. That's who we are. And so we are God's people scattered in this hostile world looking for a new home. Let me close and think about these two identities just once more and try to apply it as we head into the week. These identities of being a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and also being 
like the 12 tribes that are in the dispersion. So the first is, is, is this idea of being a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would simply ask, are you that? Are you a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that your core identity? Is that what you take on and say, if I could say anything about myself, this is what I would say. So a servant of God, the God who is the, the maker of all things, who created the world, who owns us, who has authority over us, who we have sinned against. A servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus is, is described as, as the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the true Son of God. He's the Messiah. That's what Christ means. And He's come to be the Savior. That's what Jesus means. It means that God saves. So Jesus comes as this, this promised seed. He comes out of the Old Testament shadows and becomes the reality. And He takes the penalty for our sin and then rises again to give us new life. Not through good works, but through faith in Him. And if we have been saved by Jesus, the Messiah, then He becomes Lord. We submit to Him as the Lord, the one to whom we owe our final allegiance. We renounce any other claim that we have. We renounce, if we think that we are, um, that, that our identity is rooted in something else, as James could have, something that we've done, or how we were born, or whatever it might be. No, our core identity is rooted in what God has done for us in Christ. We are children of God, and we are servants of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. I think as we think about that, we just are going to ask the question over and over again with James, and we can begin asking this morning, is, is Jesus Lord over all of me? Does he have all of me? I think about that quote of William Booth, and William Booth who started the Salvation Army. And they asked him, how, how did you do so many great things for God, Mr. Booth? And I think I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of, Jesus Christ has had all of me. What a great thought, that, that we are servants of Jesus. That's who we are. That is our core identity. When it comes down to it, we say, God is my Father, I'm a child of God, and I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Lord over all of you? That's certainly not easy. Because if you are a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a part of God's people who are scattered in a hostile world looking for a new home. And so that's the world that we live in. And that's what James is speaking to. Listen, if you're a servant of God, you are scattered in a hostile world. We're not home yet, and so it's going to be hard. So let me tell you what it's going to look like practically for you to walk in this way, for you to live in a way that that shows forth the faith that you're holding to. And so that's what we're called to do. And we're called to do it by faith. Until Christ returns, we're called to be faithful in the everyday situations of life. To live knowing that if when we die, no one ever comes to visit our grave, that we have been faithful, and that when Jesus returns, we will be raised from that grave, and we will be with Him for all eternity. That's what really matters. And so... I would invite you on this, this journey with me in the book of James, this man who, who is a servant of God, and, and to think about what it looks like to live as this child of God, a brother and sister of Jesus, who is also a, a servant. Um, I would invite you to, to walk in the light this week as a, as a child of God who is joyfully serving Him in, in the midst of a hostile world as we look for our true hope. I'd invite you to read the book of James this week. Five chapters. And there's uh, 
five days, Monday through Friday, right? You could do a chapter a day. And if you wanted something extra on Saturday, read the Sermon on the Mount that so much is is taken from um, to read this. If if it's hard for you just to read read through and say I'm gonna I'm gonna find all those commands. Give me your exact number. I said about fifty. What are all the commands? What are all the imperatives? What is James telling us to do? Read chapters one through five, and each day maybe you just get a pen and say here's all the commands that are here. Maybe you look at all the illustrations. What are all the different illustrations that he's using? These practical things. Maybe you can even start with the Sermon on the Mount and then try to find it throughout the book of James. But I'd invite you to come on this journey with me. Uh, don't just assume that, well, Andy's reading it, so I don't need to worry about it. But that, that we would read through this together and we would, we would see all this practical wisdom that's flowing from the fact that if Jesus is Lord, then this is how we, our walk of faith, this is what it will, will look like. I'm excited. I'm excited to, to look through the book of James and to, to really get down to some of these hard things. Um, I'm, I'm fearful of chapter 3 when he starts telling me about how I talk and the things that I say. But I, I want to grow. I want Jesus to be Lord over my tongue. I want Jesus to be Lord over the way that I view others, that I don't have any sort of um, uh, prejudice against people because of, of what they have or what they don't have. I, I want to grow, and I think James is going to help us. So I invite you. Uh, to learn more about the Lordship of Jesus as we walk through this um, this world, this hostile world where we're waiting for our home.